So it's Acts 21, starting from verse 17. When he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each, of, each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defied, defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Thanks, Tanya. I uh, really want to encourage you to keep your Bible open there at Acts 21, uh, so we can uh, refer to it as we go through this morning. Uh, for anybody who's new, anybody who's kind of visiting with us today, um, yeah, we've been making our way through this book for quite a while, um, and we've been thinking about the work that God did and the work that God continues to do uh, in the world today. Uh, hopefully you got a sermon outline on your way in. They were on the welcome desk. If you didn't grab one, feel free to go out and grab one. Uh, there's one there for sort of younger kids. There's one there for bigger kids or adults. Um, and there's some questions at the bottom of that one that you might like to think about um, a little bit when you get home. Before we dive in, let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that as Karis reminded us uh, just before, uh, thank you that you speak to us. 
Uh, thank you that we look outside, we see a blue sky. Uh, it's a lovely day. We're reminded of the beauty of the creation, uh, your wonderful creativity. But thank you, Lord, that you speak to us so clearly uh, through your word. Uh, you point to us, point us to yourself, to your work, uh, and what it means to be your people in this world. We ask, Lord, that you would do that this morning uh, by your Holy Spirit. Uh, give us attentiveness to what you are saying, that we might live for your glory. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, now, all of us here this morning, um, we left our homes a little while ago uh, to come and to be here. And I, I wonder what the last thing was that you did uh, before you left the house. Now, I'm guessing it, it's probably the same thing that you do every time uh, that you leave your house. And I wonder whether the last thing we do before we leave the house, whether it says something about what we think is important. So maybe, maybe you're that security conscious person. So the last thing you do is you go around and you check all of the windows and all of the doors because security is, is, is really important to you. Uh, maybe you're the person who counts that all the kids are in the car before you leave the house because, well, maybe your kids are important to you or something like that. Uh, maybe maybe you, you have a last look in the mirror before you leave the house. Just make sure it's all in place, it's all looking schmick, because, well, appearance is important. It is important. I'm not trying to put you down. You know, it's, it's important to you. Or maybe, maybe you're the person that checks that you've got your phone with you. <laughs> um, yeah, last thing you do, have I got my, yes, I've got my phone with me, uh, because the phone is kind of important. Those those last things we do before we leave, um, they show something about what is important to us. This morning, I, I want to suggest that we are going to be focusing in on a last thing, a, a last thing that Paul does uh, before he becomes a prisoner uh, for the sake of Jesus. The last thing that he does, which says what is important to him in the cause of the spread of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Now, in many ways, when we pick up the story today, uh, we are starting on our last push of effort in the book of Acts, these last eight chapters. And they are somewhat different from what we've done previously in the book of Acts. Now the theme, the big theme of course, is still the same. It is still about the ongoing acts of the Lord Jesus Christ. All he said and did after the resurrection, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the witness of the church. That doesn't change. But the circumstances of that work is going to be somewhat different. You see, by the end of the section that we read, uh, Paul is a prisoner. Uh, he's been arrested. And he will be a prisoner all the way to the end of 28, chapter 28. He'll still be a prisoner. Over that period of time, uh, three years, uh, Paul will undergo five different trials. Uh, times when he has to be, be accused of various things. And at the end of the book, he'll be waiting for a sixth. Uh, throughout those eight chapters, he will give five different speeches in defense of his ministry, 
in defense of himself and in defense of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. It starts here with Paul in Jerusalem. It's going to finish with Paul in Rome, the center of the known world at the time. Now, this passage really has the beginning of that whole saga. It's the passage where he is arrested and taken into custody. And in a sense, you have kind of these two key themes which are going to keep coming up throughout the next eight chapters. The, the opposition of the Jewish people um, and the somewhat protection that is provided to him by Rome. That's going, to, that's going to keep coming up. But what I want to do this morning is actually focus mostly on this little incident that happens before his arrest. This interaction that we have between Paul and James and his last act as a free man. Because it's an interaction which says a lot about what is important for Paul. And that is the unity of the church. It shows us the potential for disunity that exists in, in churches. It shows us the way that we walk in unity with one another. And I want to suggest it also shows us how important that unity is. So let's jump in, and we're picking up the story here at verse 17, which starts with, when he had come to Jerusalem. And now you remember the last three weeks, uh, this long journey that Paul and his companions have been taking to get to Jerusalem. And the theme that kept coming up in there is that when Paul gets there, he is going to be arrested. In verse 1, he arrives. He says that the brothers received us gladly, so the, the fellow believers... And then in verse 2, it tells us that Paul went with us, so Paul with his companions, go up to James where all of the elders are. Now, it could be really easy to gloss over this little thing, but this is actually a significant moment, actually a momentous moment in the life of the early church. It's a great moment, but it actually has a massive potential for disaster. You see, in many ways, we've got two of the heavyweights of the early church coming together. Here is James, and James is, is really the head or the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he represents all of the Jewish believers. So all those people who have grown up uh, knowing Jewish custom, living as Jewish people, but yet have come to know and believe in and love the Lord Jesus as the Messiah, as their Savior. That's on the one side. On the other side, you have Paul. Now, Paul also grew up as an Israelite, but Paul has been the apostle to the Gentiles. He's been taking God's word to, to those who didn't grow up in Israel, who have come to know the Lord Jesus and believe in him, as their Savior and as their Lord. Now at the meeting, both James and Paul have some of the fruits of the work of the gospel with them. Uh, James has with them many of the elders uh, from the Jewish Christian community. And Paul has his companions that have been traveling. And they are representatives of some of the various Gentile churches that Paul was involved in starting. 
Now, as they meet together, it's been about eight years since they last saw each other, all the way back in, in Acts chapter 15. And then Acts chapter 15, they had to deal with the issue of how these two sides of the church are going to relate together. Are they one church or are they two churches? And the issue involved there was an issue right at the heart of the gospel. How are people saved? Do people have to become Jewish in order to become Christians, or do they not? Now in Acts 15, the gospel issue had been sorted out. They're saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But still, these two sides of the church, they are culturally very different. And there's potential for a misunderstanding, and there's potential for a split. Now as they are talking, James brings this up. Look at what he says to him there in verse 20. He says, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the custom or customs. Now, notice something really important here. The issue for them is not what Paul has been teaching Gentile converts. All right? That's, that's, that's not the issue here. The issue is what Paul has been saying to Jewish people and to Jewish converts. Before, in Acts 15, the issue was, do Gentiles need to become Jewish in order to become Christians? Now the issue is, do Jewish people have to forsake their Jewishness in order to become in order to become Christians. Now, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever had it that you've tried to communicate with somebody who, who speaks a different language to you. I don't know if you've ever tried to kind of buy something in a shop in a, in a foreign country and you kind of use a lot of hand gestures, don't you, and a lot of uh, kind of maybe yelling because sometimes yelling makes someone who doesn't understand you understand you better. And there's always this potential for misunderstanding. Uh, Tracy and I were once in a, uh, a little supermarket in Poland and this uh, little old lady who ran the store attacked us. I say attacked, she was probably a bit gentle than that. Uh, she waved the shopping basket at us kind of violently and loudly and we had no idea what was going on. It turns out later that, that if you walk into a shop without a shopping basket, you're considered a thief, uh, which was what we were doing and she was trying to tell us not to steal stuff um, in her store. When you get language and cultural differences, you have all of this potential for disaster and for misunderstanding. And we see that going on here. Two very culturally different groups of people believing in the Lord Jesus. The potential for misunderstanding, the potential for disaster, the potential for this big split. Now one of the things that the book of Acts has done for us is or not done, is that it has not shied away from the difficulties and the challenges of following Jesus together. It could very easily paint this wonderful rosy picture of the church and the gospel going out to encourage us all and to make us think how easy, how wonderful, how good it is to be a follower of Jesus. But it hasn't. 
It's been real about the challenges. And it's been real about the obstacles. And here is another one. One of those challenges is division. The potential for disunity, for church splitting. Sometimes they can be over very serious issues. Sometimes they can be over very minor issues. Sometimes they can be over issues that seem very serious for one person, but very minor to another. I would probably suggest that if you've been a part of a church or churches for any length of time, um, you know the potential for this. It would be pretty naive of us to think that it couldn't or it wouldn't happen. There are issues over the way things were uh, versus the way things might be now or could become in the future. There can be issues over taste and preference, styles of music, how warm it is in the building. There can be issues over minor things and, and major things. The issue is not, are there disagreements in the church? Because they're always going to be there. The issue is, how do we deal with them? How do we move forward in a way that builds the unity of the church and doesn't destroy it? How do we relate together in a way that differences don't become the thing that pull us apart? And I want to suggest this morning that here, Paul and James too, to a, to a lesser extent, provide this wonderful example of how to deal with this. Let's start with James. And I'm looking here at how the meeting starts there in verse 19. It starts with Paul and the others relating one by one the thing that God had done among the Gentiles through the, his ministry. So here, here comes Paul. Here comes all his cronies or his guys with him. And they, they tell the story of the last eight years and all that God has done. Now, you know what it's like when you've, when you've got a kind of an issue with somebody and they, they tell you stuff and you just get suspicious about it? You kind of receive it with a sense of, really? Like, I don't know if I can 100% trust you because this is an issue. Well, James has an issue and he's going to have to bring it up. But look at what they do first. He says, and when they heard it, they glorified God. You notice that? He doesn't let this issue get in the way. He hears what the Lord has done and they praise God together for it. Now let's move on to Paul. Because James now brings up this suggestion to Paul of a way forward. He says we've got this issue. Things have been said about the way that you're doing ministry. You've come back here. This is going to be an issue for Jewish Christians. Now, James's concern is not about outside of that. His concern is about what the Jewish Christians, the many thousands of them, are going to think. And so he says to Paul, Paul, I've got an idea. We've got these four guys here, and they've taken a vow. And they need to be purified as part of that vow. And we want you to join them, and we want you to actually pay for them. We recommend that you do this so that you can make it clear to everyone out there that you are not anti-law. You are not saying that what they are doing is rubbish. 
and that you are still one of them. Now, incredibly, Paul doesn't exactly say, yes, we don't have him saying that, but in verse 26, uh, we see that Paul agrees with this and he does it. Now, why would he do that? Maybe we thought that Paul would stand up and say, James, what are you on about here? I don't need to do that. I don't need to do that to be right with God. Uh, I haven't done that in the temple since before I was converted. Uh, why would I need to do that? But he doesn't. He goes along with it. Now, why would he do that? Well, I want to take you to two passages which Paul wrote himself would help explain why. First one I want to take you to is in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where he talks about his ministry, and he talks particularly about his evangelistic ministry. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and reading from verse 19. Look at what he says. It says here, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. What's he saying here exactly? My goal, my priority, seeing people one to the Lord Jesus. You know, what I do is secondary. If it's not a gospel issue, if it's not compromising the gospel, I will do what I need to do to win people. Now, I want to flick to another passage, Romans chapter 14. We're here, he's more dealing with life inside of the church, and he's applying that same principle to people inside the church. Look at what he says, Romans 14, starting at verse 1. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person may be believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. If you're vegan, I don't know what you do with that one. But anyway, uh, anyway, let's move on. Uh, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on him who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And then picking that up again in verse uh, 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but decide rather never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do you destroy the one for whom Christ died? 
What is the way of unity in the midst of disagreement? Or in the midst of diversity? What is the way that diversity doesn't tear a church apart? What does Paul say? You walk in love and you sacrifice your own desires, your own preferences for the sake of each other. How, how can Paul put himself through something which he doesn't believe is absolutely necessary? This purification right. He does it for the sake of his brothers and sisters in Christ. That no stumbling block will be put in their way. That there will be no hindrance to the unity in the church. There are always going to be differences in the life of the church. There are always going to be things that we think differently about. How do we deal with them? We sacrifice our own freedoms for the sake of one another. Paul is an incredible example of this. Now, if it's a gospel issue, if the gospel is at stake, he stands his ground. He will not be budged. But when it's a non-essential issue, he sacrificed himself, his freedom, for the sake of each other. That's what makes the difference in a Christian community. It's what makes the difference in a, in a, in a Christian marriage, doesn't it? What's different about Christians marrying together? Well, you get two people who are willing to sacrifice their freedom for the sake of each other. They're willing to give up their own rights and their preferences to love and to serve the other person. It's not that Christian marriages don't have problems or difficulties. They do. But the way that they deal with them is from the gospel. It follows in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus who laid down his life for us. What, what's going to make our, our youth group, our, our branch youth, our, our youth hanging out together, what's going to make that distinctive and different from other communities that our young people are engaged in? What's going to make it stand out and last? Well, by God's grace, it's going to be full of young people who willingly sacrifice their own preferences for the sake of one another, who love each other and who show it in the way that they live. What's going to make our, our growth groups great communities of encouragement and growth and blessing, a, a great community to be a part of? What's going to stop them from being torn apart when, when somebody says something carelessly that offends another person? Are they going to deal with things in the pattern that the Lord Jesus set for us? They're going to be people who lay down their lives and give up their freedoms for the sake of one another. How does South Barwon, with, with its wonderful diversity, with its eclectic nature of people from different backgrounds and with, with, come from different churches sometimes and with different ideas, how does it stop from being pulled apart in every direction? It stays together by sacrificing its own preferences and our own needs for the sake of one another. Giving up our freedoms so that people might be encouraged, so that people might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting that some commentators, when they're talking about this passage, 
I actually want to make the suggestion that what, what James says to Paul here is actually a really bad idea, or it's a bad suggestion. And even they want to suggest that it backfires. Because ultimately, Paul is going to end up in the temple for this purification rite. And it's at the temple where Paul is beaten and ultimately arrested. And it's going to put him in chains in this journey towards Rome. Is it possible that this idea of James is actually a dumb idea and it backfires on him? Well, I want to suggest there's another very different way of looking at this. As I said at the start, this is the last act of Paul's as a free man. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? That his last act as a free man is to make himself a slave for the sake of others. He's arrested and he will still be in prison. In spite of that, the gospel will not be changed. Paul will continue and the gospel will go out. And behind Paul will be a united church. He will not be fighting a battle on two fronts because of his sacrifice and his giving himself as a slave to others. The church will be unified. And you know what it's like when you've had a really bad day. Maybe you had a bad day at school or a bad day at work or it's just a bad day around. Things just go wrong. And then you get to come home and it's a place of peace. And it's just kind of safe. And it's good to be there. We know the opposite too, don't we? When we come home, it's been a bad day and home is bad. That's, that makes it even worse. But how good is it when you get to come home and home is safe? How good is it for the people of the Lord Jesus who face trial and opposition and hardship and difficulty but yet get to come home to a church community of peace, of love, where people are willing to give themselves up for the sake of others. How much difference does that make of what we're willing to endure and suffer for the sake of Christ in the world around about us? You see, Acts is reminding us again and again <laughs> Our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. And what we need is a unified home. A community of people who have got your back and you have got theirs. Whose lives of love embody the gospel. Who encourage you and spur you on. People who back up the message that we're trying to proclaim to others. People through whom God picks us up and blesses us and encourages us and gets us ready to go again. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord God, we thank you for your church. Uh, we thank you for the unity, the oneness that is ours in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that in spite of all of our differences, uh, we are saved by grace. We are saved through faith. Uh, thank you, Lord God, that in you it is possible for differences 
and diversity uh, to become unity and to become encouragement and blessing. We pray, Lord God, that that would be the case for us here at South Barwon. That in spite of differences, in spite of different backgrounds and preferences, uh, that you would make us one. That we would humbly walk in the steps of the Lord Jesus. That we would be people who love one another and give our lives up for the sake of each other. Lord God, we pray that where there might be strains and relationships in our church, that you would enable there to be healing and forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that where we have major differences, you would enable us to deal with them well, deal with them properly, deal with them in a way that brings glory to you. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.